How can cities collaborate for good urbanization? Hi, my name is Marcin Wojciech-Żebrowski and this is the newest episode of Herbcast, my podcast about architecture, urbanism, cities and many more. Today I'm happy to introduce the newest series with Urban Future Conference. The Urban Future Conference in Stuttgart is over now, but together as a media partner I prepared a series of very interesting discussions with different city makers from all over the world. The first guest is Professor Greg Clark, who is a renowned urbanist, author and advocate for sustainable cities. With extensive experience working with cities worldwide, he chairs, among many, the Connected Places Catapult and the Cities Commission for Climate Investment. He is a prophylic author, a senior advisor to various organizations, and an influential voice in shaping urban development and investment strategies. Today we will discuss the big case of urbanization, why is it not a choice but rather a global trend, and how to effectively manage urbanization. We will be discussing the century of cities and the opportunities that cities are given to work and collaborate globally to grow sustainably. We will discuss the differences between good and bad urbanization, how should the cities do the energy switch and urban transition, how the urban designers and architects can contribute to the good urbanization, and what are and how to gain the benefits of collaboration between the cities globally. These are only some of the elements of our discussion with Greg, and I hope that you will enjoy this conversation. Let me just start by saying that I'm very thrilled, I'm honored to, to have you here, Greg, as a guest. Welcome to, to Herbcast. Thank you very much, Marcin. It's good to be here. It's amazing to have this collaboration with Urban Future because this is a place, that this is a conference that is happening in Stuttgart that is bringing all urban minds from all over, not only Europe, but also the globe. And I'm very happy that we can both be part of it and, and have this discussion as a, as a part of, of Urban Future. And I really do hope, I believe that most of my listeners already know who you are, but I will just start anyway with this uh, brief question about, uh, could you just say something more about yourself? How would you introduce yourself in the best possible way? Well, I'm Greg Clark. I'm a Irish-British man who lives <laughs> in London, and I've been working for nearly 40 years on cities. And part of my work has been about the future of London, But much of my work has been with 400 cities in different parts of the world where I've been an advisor about strategic planning, about organizational and institutional strengthening, about branding strategies, economic strategies, sustainability strategies. And I've also worked with large numbers of cities working together in various kinds of territorial networks as well as thematic networks. I've written 10 books about cities. I'm host of a podcast about cities, and I'm a professor of urbanization and innovation at two universities. So cities are my life, Marcin, and in the same way that they are for many of your listeners, it's the dynamics and the motivation that comes from seeing how cities are able to sequence and orchestrate so much of what humanity tries to do that makes working with cities so exciting. I'm very happy that we share the same passion for cities. I'm also trained as an, as an urbanist, as an urban designer, and I'm thinking about cities constantly. And of course, this podcast is also a part of it. And going back to the beginning of your journey with cities, of course, we're going to discuss this urban and global perspective on cities. But what was your kind of motivation for actually pursuing this, this career path within cities? Because at the same time, it's a beautiful topic, but also very complex, I need to say. Yes, well, one of the motivations is the complexity. Mm. Because I think that um, when I grew up, I grew up in London in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And my first experience of the big London was riding on the London Underground and traveling around this very big city using this underground railway system. I didn't know at the time that London had invented the Underground <laughs> Railway 160 years ago and that there would be, you know, something like 
two million people a day riding on the underground then. And mm. now, of course, more than 200 cities around the world have an underground railway. So that's London's legacy to the world. But I think for me, it was the realization growing up in London and then living in Mexico City and then in New York City that led me to understand that cities have an energy that's all of their own. Mm. Cities have, as I say, this amazing ability to orchestrate or to choreograph human mm. life. And cities have the ability to enable humankind to do something which is natural to us, which is to synchronize our behavior with one another so that mm. we are able to achieve things together. I see cities as sharing platforms, platforms that enable large numbers of people to somehow synchronize what they do with one another so that they can be more productive or more creative or they can produce things that are of high social value, or they can create common services and expertise and, and everything else. So I think cities are part of the magic of what's made humankind a more intelligent, more productive, more creative species. So from mm. that point of view, I can't think about being a member of the human race without thinking of the role that cities play in our own civilization and evolution. How big of an influence uh, for your interest for cities was or were other pioneers within the, the discipline? I can think of Jane Jacobs or maybe Charles Landry that also was talking about the, the creative city. Were those the people, the, the, of course, highly renowned profiles that influenced your thinking or maybe it was something else? No, indeed. I was always interested in Jane Jacobs' work and I'm lucky enough to know Charles Landry and I respect Charles very much. Um, the person who was probably most influential on my thinking was Professor Sir Peter Hall, Britain's most renowned urban planner, who not only, I think, decoded the idea of a world city and then a global city, but he also understood the interplay between the dynamics of geography that operates at many different spatial scales, the, the local, the urban, the metropolitan, the regional, the multi-regional. But uh, Peter also understood, I think, in an amazing way, the interplay between economy and cities. He particularly defined how a world city came to be a city that specialized in the globalizing industries of the time. And Peter also understood better than anyone else that transport and connectivity infrastructure is critical to shaping the space of cities but also that urban governance really mattered, that if you were going to have these complex dynamic places with these multiple scales of geography, you needed appropriate governance for each mm. of those scales. So Peter Hall's wonderful book, Cities and Civilization, mm. I think brilliantly describes the first thing I was talking about, which is how it is that cities have synchronized the great endeavors of humankind and hmm. contributed so much to a civilized society. But then his later work really emphasized the importance of governance, of transport and connectivity, of effective land use policies, and of putting, as it were, creativity at the heart of all of that. So Peter hmm. Hall was probably my biggest influence. And I was, again, lucky enough to know him well and always grateful for any interaction mm. with him. Thank you for this inspiration with, with Peter Hall. As I've mentioned to you before recording, a huge group of listeners are students. And I think that this is a great, a great moment to also pass this innovation and inspiration part forward. And here I would like to also ask you about your own work, because I think that one of most interesting things to me is that you are also responsible for the city's catapult, which is an organization that is contributing to driving the innovation in cities. Could you make us a bit more familiar with this as well? Yes, sure. So I think the first thing to say, Marcin, is that my work really falls into perhaps four categories. Mm. I'm very interested in the relationship between cities and climate. And I spend a lot of time on how we can have good urbanization rather than bad urbanization and sustainable cities rather than unsustainable cities and what that means. Uh, the second thing I spend a lot of time on is, is urban economy. How do we enable cities to have high-value economies, but also to have a mixed economy with multiple jobs for people of all different levels of skill and a wide range of incomes? And of course, in that regard, I spend a lot of time on innovation economy activities. The third thing is that I do a huge amount of 
benchmarking of cities, comparing cities in very large cohorts to try to understand what's making the difference and why are some cities moving faster or better or deeper than others. And my focus there is often on leadership Mm. as the key variable. What is the role of leadership in cities to really enable them to succeed? And then the fourth area is very much around this idea of the DNA of cities, looking at what makes each city absolutely unique. Mm. And how do we understand what are the factors and conditions that create each city's uniqueness? Mm. And what does that, how does that uniqueness express itself mm. in terms of creativity, innovations, myths, stories, agendas? I'm very interested that we move away from some generic idea that all cities need X or do mm. Y and instead start to, start to think of every city as a unique entity, a bit like human beings mm. are all unique, right? So, so that's a focus. Mm. And uh, the way I work is that essentially half of my time, I'm doing all sorts of creative projects mm. that I'm interested in, <laughs> including podcasts and books and conferences. The other half of my time, I have a number of responsibilities. And uh, one of them is that I'm chair, as you said, of the Connected Places Catapult, which is a national agency in the UK, supported by the UK government, but operating as a not-for-dividend business, which is driving innovation, particularly in cities and in transport systems, focusing very much on how we use technology to create new kinds of place leadership. Mm. That's really the focus there. And then I'm also chair of another organization called the Cities Commission for Climate Investment, which is focusing on how city governments can be more effective in working with private capital Mm. to increase the rate of investment towards the decarbonization of cities, recognizing that it's very expensive to decarbonize our cities, but we have no alternative and therefore we must innovate in how we finance it. Mm. And I'm also then on the board of Transport for London, our regional transport authority, and I'm chair of Transport for London's Land and Property Committee, which is now developing a really exciting new business model on how to use public land in our city, London, to drive progress in building affordable housing, low-carbon buildings of all sorts, EV charging capability, mixed-use developments above stations, Mm. and the reinvention of town centres around the ideas of good density, high amenity, urban living, Mm. clustered around transport nodes. So if you like, the Transport Authority also needs to be a property company Mm. in order to realise the urbanistic potential of having high-capacity transport. Mm. So half of my time, I'm being very responsible with these organizations, and half of my time, I'm being creative. I'm really happy that you can have this division because you also need this creativity to be consumed in a way, right? And I think that creating a podcast and also sharing all the knowledge you have, writing books, writing articles is something that that really spreads this experience. And I'm really thankful for that because it also it is also something that inspires me as well. And you've mentioned a lot of things and I'm, I'm aware that it will be very hard to put almost 40 years of your experience into this podcast episode. So I will try, I will do my best to just narrow it down to a couple of the most important or interesting things that I I would like to also mention in this uh, discussion with you, Greg. And one of them will be definitely the one around the energy, the energy switch and and the city striving for the net net zero path. And it's all urban transition around energy. Would you share your thoughts around that, especially maybe using London as an example of, of how those processes start and how do they look like now? And What can we basically expect around the energy transition in cities? Why don't we begin by just talking about the whole world for a minute? Because Mm. clearly the the big challenge here is that we are in a situation where the growth of the human population worldwide, from one to three to six to nine billion human beings, is having devastating effects on the planet on our ecosystems and our biodiversity. We are, as a human race, 
You know, we have created the idea of an, an Anthropocene, a time when the, the human being has become so dominant that we're creating a kind of ecosystem collapse around us. It's not just global warming. It's also devastation of biodiversity. It's also, of course, the uh, desertification of the world. It's the overfishing. It's the, it's, it's the overfarming. It's everything we're doing. As the population of humankind grows, we are depleting our planet more and more rapidly. And so the urgency of this challenge is both great and now, and we're, we've already missed many opportunities to put things right, which we need to now do. And so cities are a key part of this because cities are the places that concentrate the majority of humanity. And um, mm. I like to put it very, very simply, which is to say that by 2100, in 77 years' time, we'll have roughly 10 billion people living in roughly 10,000 cities. This is a simple way to think, but it mm. sort of makes sense. And we're so rapidly urbanizing that, you know, we are quadrupling the number of people who live in cities from 1980 to 2080. We're multiplying by six the number of cities over one million. We're doubling the percentage. But the underlying idea is the growth of human population. And mm. you have a fundamental choice here, Marcin. If you're going to have 10 billion people, what's the most sustainable way to settle them? Is it to have them living in 100,000 towns or is it to have them living in 10,000 cities? And I would suggest to you that 10,000 cities is potentially the most sustainable way mm. to accommodate a 10 billion person population. But it means that we have to learn as a whole species what a sustainable city looks like, what good mm. urbanization is like. And when we come down to thinking about carbon in particular, which is only one of the challenges... We know that if we want to decarbonize cities, they've got to be clean, connected, and compact. This is the work of the Coalition for Urban Transitions, who've done a, a great job on this area. So we need to have cities that are clean, the water, the energy, the buildings, the transport systems, the land uses, the waste strategies, all need to be about cleaning the city so that we're not putting dirt, pollution, congestion, poison anywhere in the atmosphere or in the land or in the systems. Hmm. They need to be connected, both physically connected so that people can move around them in a low carbon way, but also digitally connected so that we can think about how to mix physical movement with digital connectivity. And we need to use all of those connectivity systems to enable us to have intelligent cities. So connectivity, the use of AI, the use of digital twins, the use of other kinds of platforms are essential to this. And then they need to be compact. They need to be mm. frugal with the use of land so that we don't overuse our land and we concentrate mm. our activities together in the same places with mixed use of development, with reform of land uses, and if we clean things, we're able to put more things together. We only mm. had to separate industry from residential areas in the past because industry was dirty. If mm. industry is clean, it can be combined with other kinds of land use. So we have to be compact. And that means medium density, high amenity, clean systems that enable us to put people together in multiple ways. And of course, then each city can find its own form. Cities could be polycentric with multiple centers, or they could have two or three big centers. But if they're clean, connected, and compact, all of that works. So that's the first idea. The second idea is that the net zero path includes an energy switch and an urban transition. I write it as an equation. Net zero path equals energy switch plus urban transition. Mm. Energy switch, almost everybody understands. We have to move yeah. from fossil fuel-based energies to renewable sources of energy. And whether that be solar or it be hydro or it be wind or it be thermal or it be biomass, there's many sources of energy. Mm. But the urban transition part means that we need to re-equip our buildings, our transport systems, our vehicles, 
our modes of production, our forms of delivery, our lifestyles, we need to re-equip and revise our lifestyles towards optimizing the use of this alternative energy and doing it in a way which is also frugal and, and careful with the energy. It's very clear, isn't it, that the amount of carbon that's already been emitted by the, the industrialized countries, the richer countries in the world, is already much more than the world could afford. So we mm. can't afford to go through another cycle of development where other cities around the world become as carbon intensive as the cities were in the industrial process. So there's another key idea, which is that we need to do decarbonization in a different way from the way we did deindustrialization. When we deindustrialized the cities in the north and the west in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, it was often done in a way that was relatively unplanned. It hmm. left large communities impoverished. It created physical, social, and environmental scars that were never really properly addressed. So decarbonization has to be a fair process, and it has to be a planned process, and it has to be accompanied by investments. And if we don't do that, we'll create more problems than we solve. Mm. The, the transition will not be just, it will be unjust, and there'll be a lot of opposition to it. And we can see, I think, March, in day-to-day -day and week-to-week -week in the news, people who are climate deniers, people who are opposing low-traffic neighborhoods, people who are against, you know, the switch towards public transport or low-carbon vehicles or... Or 15-minute cities. Yeah, or 15-minute cities, which is something else that we could talk about. But if you like, unless we do this in a way which is demonstrably fair and encourages everyone to trust it then every attempt to decarbonize our cities will be met with very vigorous opposition. You emphasize that your perspective is global and you really do your best to have this overview of all different cities and you and you are interested, as you've mentioned before this conversation, in those 10,000 successful and sustainable cities. But I wonder, how can we make sure that those cities that will become, that will be created in the, on the planet, that they will be equally sustainable? So how can we make sure that a new, new one million city that is becoming in India is equally sustainable to the one in Poland or in Great Britain? And is it even possible to transfer this, this knowledge in between, especially that, as we mentioned in the beginning, the city is something of a huge complexity? Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think the answer is that we don't want all cities to be sustainable in exactly the same ways, mm. but we want them to be sustainable in equivalent ways. And equivalent allows those cities to be different in the way they do this. But let me start by saying, I think we can already see a number of models around the world of sustainable cities emerging in different places. So if you take Northern Europe, where many of us are familiar, the, the great Nordic capitals, what do we see? We see medium-sized cities, generally one, two, three million people, with a compact urban form, generally with six stories or maybe eight-story apartment living. We see them being underpinned by high-quality public transport, but good urban planning that enables a high level of walking and cycling. And uh, what we see from that is a way that you can combine a high-value economy with a high level of investment in social provision and a strong commitment to decarbonization. So whether we're mm. discussing Copenhagen or Stockholm or Oslo or Helsinki or Reykjavik or Gothenburg or Aarhus, we're talking about cities that have a real sustainability imperative. So that's one kind of sustainable city. Another kind of sustainable city we see in Asia with 36 million people in Tokyo, Osaka, or mm. 20 million people in Seoul, or 7 million people now in Singapore, or 3 million people in Taipei. What do we see there? We see high-rise, high-density, high-amenity living. People are culturally adjusted to living in tall buildings, underpinned by very high capacity, very reliable public transport systems, often now running on renewable energy, coupled with 
a ground floor experience for people, which involves high quality of amenities, great parks, good neighborhood services, so that people feel like they're really living in an urban village, even mm. though they're in a big Asian city. And you see that coupled with the very high use of technology to create intelligent cities that operate in a way that is responsive to the client or the resident or the citizen in really interesting ways. So that combination of high density, high amenity, high capacity transport, high quality of urban design, coupled with the optimization of technology, that's another model of how to be mm. a sustainable city, right? And if we look over to North America, and let's just pick the Canadian cities for a minute. Let's take Toronto and Vancouver and Montreal, just to give us three. What do we see here? Well, I think what we see here is a really interesting mix of huge cultural diversity, because Canada has been very open to uh, international migration, coupled with a combination of what you see in Asia and in Europe, because in the downtowns of the Canadian cities, you'll often see very tall buildings, mm. housing a lot, you know, a lot of housing. Let's take downtown Toronto, high density, high amenity, high connectivity housing in the downtown, but a more kind of spread out, lower density quality of life in the suburbs, if you like, offering people a different kind of choice but increasingly that being underpinned by an integrated public transport system that is reliable and works, an alternative energy system that makes use of nature, and in particular in the case of Toronto, Lake Ontario, and, and access to its particular properties. And then, of course, a, a strong focus on public education of citizens and really helping them to make good choices about how to live in a sustainable way. So... I'm making a point here, really, that there's different ways of being a sustainable city, and each city has to find its way. I wouldn't propose to Warsaw or, or Poznan or Krakow that they copy Tokyo, because it mm, wouldn't make no. any sense. But they might learn something interesting from the combination of what's happening in Montreal and what's happening in Aarhus. So mm. I think we have to be flexible in the way we think about the paths to sustainability for different mm. kinds of cities. I hope it makes sense. Of course, like the first example of the more Nordic and Scandinavian cities was the closest to my heart as I'm living in Copenhagen myself. And I think I'm definitely aware and I agree what you mean with this efficiency, with this kind of mid-height of buildings, but also a kind of a big density and walkability. Definitely that's a part of, of sustainable city definition to me. But I also see... It happening in Singapore, for example, I remember that although it was extremely humid and hot, at the same time, I was really amazed by the amount of the greenery. And here you gave also the third example of the North American of Canadian cities, and it's completely three different approaches to cities. And while you've been the, discussing that, while you've been basically introducing those three models, I started to think about the role of urban design and architects in this good sustainable urbanization because as someone with urban design background and also professionally working at Henning Larson Architects, I was wondering how can designers, architects contribute to the future development of cities? And is it even possible given these this differences that architects are working worldwide, globally? Well, absolutely. Architects and urban designers and indeed urban planners have a really critical role to play. And I'll try to spell out. I think it's probably three roles. The first thing is that for a city to become truly sustainable, it needs to become more itself. It needs to really reflect on what is its real natural environment, its palette, its fiber, the stone, the bricks, the materials, the nature of the wood, the way the wind blows, the sources of natural water. If you like, the ecology of the city needs to be embraced mm. and be reflected in the urban design for the city to be authentic. And when you create a place that is authentic, people will behave in a way that is more authentic. So if you want people to make courageous or sincere decisions about reducing their carbon footprint or reducing their waste or being more frugal about how much meat they eat, or any of these other points, 
It's going to be greatly aided if you have a place that has an integrity and an authenticity to it in terms of showing the city in nature, not showing the city as opposed to nature. So I think that's the first thing at the most fundamental level. The second thing is that we have to inspire citizens mm. to make good choices. And if you want people to ride on public transport instead of driving, or you want them not to use air conditioning, but to go for a passive building or a Bauhaus approach, or you want them to eat a more sustainable food, you've got to create appealing, exciting and enticing venues in which they can make those choices because the venues themselves influence the choices mm. in a very particular way and they make those choices much more appealing or unappealing to people. So, for example, in the design of train stations or bus stops, mm. it's very important to make them gathering places where people want to be because that will contribute to their positive decision to ride on public transport rather than to drive. So I think that's the second thing. And then the third thing that's really key is that given that we've already said that we have to be frugal with our land and we have to create mixed-use, high-amenity locations, urban design and architecture is critical in enabling us to create places, spaces and shapes that are agile and are able to play more than one role at different times of day and different days of the week, different weeks of the month and different seasons of the year. Yeah. We don't need cities that are static and rigid. We need cities that are adaptable, resilient, agile, flexible. And using intelligent design to give us that is a way that we will achieve more frugality in how we use land and how we use buildings. Now, there's lots of other things we could say, Marching, it's a big topic. But I think those are three ways in which urban designers and architects and other, you know, other creative people in the placemaking professions can play a really significant role. I hope that this answer will inspire them. As I say, there are many people that work with cities on a daily basis that listen to this podcast. So I hope that this is at least a starting point for them. But while discussing this high amenity and attractive cities, I cannot stop thinking about the urban districts and the urban innovation districts that start to appear in the cities. And here I would like to discuss the concept of this urban innovation. I think I've, I've seen the other day in one of the articles that there will be new innovation districts appearing in different cities and maybe it will be no no longer the the big global cities that attract people but maybe it will be actually the smaller cities but with this innovation in their veins that attract people how do you see that development going further especially in terms of the urban innovation districts let's start at the very beginning and say that you know if you look at any classic model of economic evolution you go from the the primary industries, which are essentially extraction and agriculture and others, into productive industries, what we think of as being, you know, industries, factories, making things, to services, and then from services to what we call innovation or the mm. quaternary economy. Now, each of these different kinds of industries has a different spatial footprint. So if you're doing primary extraction, you're talking about coal mines, oil rigs, farms, and other things. If you're doing the industrial production, you're essentially talking about factories, even if they're modern factories. If you're talking about a service industry, you're really talking about central business districts where service companies can come together, media, information, law, finance, accountancy, advertising, they can come together as a services cluster. But in the quaternary economy, in the innovation economy, there's a slightly different approach to clustering. And what you can say about this is that, of course, other things being equal, and that means that you have to have a conducive business climate for innovation and entrepreneurship and a good macroeconomic framework for intellectual property, for investment in, in fast-growing young companies. If you've got those things in place, then 
innovation clusters can occur almost anywhere. Mm. But generally speaking, they will occur in places that are adjacent to knowledge creation assets. So that could be universities, it could be scientific institutions, hospitals, it could be large corporates that have their own R&D function, it could be a military establishment. So where you get a big concentration of research and development, you could get an innovation cluster emerging around it or near to it. That's, I think, the first thing to say. The second thing is that we're not really talking about an innovation district simply being, as it were, the one place where all the jobs get housed. Mm. But what you are thinking of is that the concentration itself is useful. Why is it useful? Well, firstly, it's highly visible. So it signals to the marketplace, to other workers, to investors, to entrepreneurs and others that something special is happening here. So it gives it a special character and it allows you to promote it. So it creates visibility. Visibility can lead to confidence. People can see it's happening and they can want to be part of it and want to organize around it. And then it also allows you to start identifying what are some of the common needs of the companies that are in those kinds of locations mm -hmm. so that you can start to meet those needs with services, with infrastructures, with platforms, and with other things. So an urban innovation district, in a way, is a specialized industrial cluster of mm -hmm. companies that are commercializing science, technology, research, and development of one kind or another. And often they are working under the conditions of co-opetition, where they're competing and cooperating at the same time. And everybody knows that some of those companies have the chance of becoming really successful and many will not survive. So you have to have an entrepreneurship culture where people are highly tolerant of failure mm. and start again and failure and start again. So you need that kind of thing. But if you can do this, then it potentially means that many hundreds of cities around the world can have a role in this high-value economy. It's not a winner-takes-all model. If you think about the global city model, where we were looking at you know, which cities will become the world center of banking and finance and venture mm. capital and, and those sorts of things, or which cities will be the world center of media, that kind of clustering gave a small number of winners and a large number of losers. Mm. The innovation economy and the way we're talking at it potentially gives a large number of winners, right? So that's a good thing. And then the last point I would say is that the word innovation is much overused, as you'll be aware, Mark. Mm -hmm. I think it's quite important for us to think about three different things that are going on in these districts. And every district has a different mix. So on the one hand, the first kind of innovation is what we call the innovation economy, hmm. where we're really talking about a district hosting companies that are directly involved in the commercialization of science, technology, and research in one way or another to create new products, new experiences, and new services. And they're, they're using that to really drive an economy. And uh, that's the kind of economic side of it. Then there's a second idea, which we might call urban innovation, which is that some of the platforms that are created in these sorts of places are actually platforms that are about making the cities themselves more efficient. They're platforms to measure the carbon intensity of buildings, or they're platforms to enable single ticketing in a public transport system, or they're platforms to enable predictive integration between transport systems, energy systems, food systems, and building configurations. So what is sometimes called the smart city or the intelligent city or the future city, that's the urban innovation part, mm. right? And that's very important. And then the third part is what we might call social innovation or in mm. inclusive innovation, where we're using, as it were, practices that are about doing things differently to try to achieve better social outcomes in terms of addressing inequality, fuel poverty, addressing disadvantage, helping people to lead more fulfilling lives despite being on lower incomes, those sorts of things. Now, there's obviously a complex set of relationships between hosting the innovation economy, using urban innovation systems to make your city work better, and using inclusive innovation or social innovation approaches to enable more of your citizens 
to participate mm. in a higher quality of life. But these relationships are not automatic. You can have a city that's got a very high proportion of activity in the innovation economy, but is not really doing a lot on urban innovation or social innovation. You could have another city that's very strong on social innovation, but doesn't really host the innovation economy. So we need to be, I think, thoughtful about what we mean when we say innovation. And there's no direct relationship between those three things. But we see some examples where all three things are beginning to work together and then you get a really innovative city. Would that be your answer and uh, suggestion or maybe recipe for all the different cities around the world to attract basically new citizens, to attract the growth as well? I'm wondering here in terms of, you know, this overall future investment, because the, there are cities that are definitely growing faster. There are cities that are growing a bit slower. And if you would give a recommendation for a city, how can it not miss the train in a way? How can it be part of this development, but also still thinking about a sustainable development? Because we've been just discussing that there will be over 1,600, 1, 1 million cities by 2080. We are talking about 10 billion people living on the planet. So how those cities can maybe, I don't know, is, is the competition the right approach or how can, how can they be part of this huge change and the development in your opinion? Yes, it's a very good question. And I suppose I have three thoughts about this. Mm. And uh, the first thing perhaps is this, that I, I'm broadly speaking, I think that the benefits of competition are emphasized too much mm. and the benefits of cooperation are emphasized too little. Mm. So I want us to have 10,000 sustainable cities. I don't want to have 1,000 sustainable cities and 9,000 unsustainable cities. Mm. So I'm much more interested in this at the global level and that seems to me to be very important. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is that Every city has implicitly a different carrying capacity. Every city has a different set of natural endowments, ecosystem endowments. And on the other hand, they have acquired endowments through their infrastructure investments and everything else. So simply competing to grow your population is not necessarily the right thing to do. Mm. What you should be doing is thinking of what's the right population for the ecosystem endowments that you have, the infrastructure that you can create, and the optimal way in which you can use your land in a frugal way. So I'm much more now reconciled with the idea that it's about optimizing the cities we currently have within the carrying capacity that they bring, hmm. and combining with that the building of some new cities. I, I fully accept that in certain parts of the world, we simply need to build more city. There are some parts of the world where we've got cities that are becoming abandoned, but I don't think it's easy simply to swap population around. We have to, in a sense, follow the people rather than lead the people in terms of where they want to live. So I think that's the second thing. And then the third thing I would say is that because there's a different path to sustainability for every city, we know that the big difference is those cities that recognize that the human population is growing, mm. they anticipate that population could grow, and they plan for growth. There's a difference between those cities and cities for whom population growth seems to be an accident, that they were unprepared for. Sustainability is not to do with the size of population that you have. It's how prepared you are for the population. Let's take the obvious point of housing. It seems at the moment that all over the world, city planners, real estate developers and investors and others have become surprised by how quickly urban populations are growing relative to how quickly the housing stock is growing. Mm. Well, why is anybody surprised about this? If we had looked at the demographic trends and recognize that we're on the way to having 10 billion people living in 10,000 cities, then we would have accepted, I think, the responsibility that we therefore have to build enough homes 
for 10 billion people, and we should get on with it. So we have a big challenge, I think, in cities accepting that they must plan for growth, that they must invest in advance of the growth happening so that they can accommodate population in a sustainable way. Mm. And there are very few nation states or national governments in the world that have really developed this proactive approach to growth planning and growth management, which is so essential when you have a demographic curve of population growth, but you want to do it in a sustainable way. We have to decouple population growth from bad urbanization, and we have to link it with good urbanization Mm. instead. This is why Singapore has been such a popular city for people to talk about, because they have been building their nationhood for the last 60 years, more or less. They've become very good at planning for population growth. And as a consequence, they've been able to accommodate population growth without experiencing extremes of uh, housing market unaffordability or without experiencing other kinds of extremes because they've planned for growth. So there's a really core lesson here that you, if you're going to be a successful city, your population is going to grow. And therefore, if you want to be successful, you must plan for the growth that will be a consequence of your own success. Hmm. So that's the the main takeaway for me, and also again bringing Singapore as an example. I think it's a it's a definitely a topic for another discussion, another podcast, or maybe even a couple of podcast episodes, just uh, talking about the role models. But I'm I'm happy that we stayed on this kind of global level, and we've discussed different different examples of that. I know that we did not cover some of the topics, and I was aware from the very beginning because, as we've mentioned already, I mean you have this huge, huge, huge knowledge here, and my aim was to just present a part of it but I think that since you have such a such a great experience there is one more question that I would like to ask and it is about a book recommendation you've written a lot of books yourself so of course that might be one of the obvious recommendations but otherwise would there be something very interesting for the for the listeners to dive in after our conversation well um I'd like to say much in that I think the really important question in all of this concerns how effectively our urban leaders, our city leaders, read and interpret the times we're in and make sense of them. And when you look back at all of the books that have been written about cities, from Lewis Mumford to Jane Jacobs and and everyone else, my favorite book remains Peter Hall's Cities and Civilization Mm. that I mentioned before, which I think brilliantly describes how cities in different eras or epochs became the leading cities of their time and what were the seeds of their innovations that enabled them to excel and to somehow create a new version of what it is to be a city. This idea really appeals to me because it combines three things that I really like. One, it combines this idea of each city having its own unique DNA, its own ecosystem, its own natural abilities and and capabilities and talents and assets. Then it combines this idea of cities being influential by inventing things in one place that have never been invented before and becoming influential from doing Mm. that, whether it's the the film industry in Los Angeles or whether it was the creation of of early banking and insurance in, in Florence right, that you can trace the origins of so many societal innovations back mm. to particular cities in particular times. So, so that's very important. And then the, the third thing that comes from this understanding, I think, is that city leaders have to try to be wise and mm. not simply to copy what other cities are doing, but try to figure out what's the unique thing that my city can do or can be. And that involves a very sympathetic relationship with the city itself, understanding its unique capabilities and characteristics and being willing to play to them and to work with them. And I think that's a very exciting idea that if you like, we can, all cities can follow a model of trying to be sustainable. Each one will need to do it in its own way. But the magical and unique ingredient is the quality of leadership that is able to work in partnership with citizens and with stakeholders to craft, as it were, 
a pathway for each city to become what it can become. And uh, this idea, I think, relates very much to, you know, a normal understanding we have about human beings. If you, if you want a human being to thrive, you want them to really become themselves and to be really authentic and to become more individual as they become older and more wise. Well, we want our cities to become more individual, more unique, more distinctive as they find their way. But to do that, wise leadership is needed. And I've come to the point of view that city leadership is now the most important job on the planet. Mm. And therefore, I think it's very important that all of us learn how to support our city leaders to be wise, to be courageous, and in the end, to be generous towards their competitors and to be generous towards um, their citizens in order to find a way that we can create places where people really want to live and work together. Because the thing about the city that makes it different is that it's, a, it's an act of togetherness in a physical form. And uh, that's a very important way to understand it. Wow, I think there is a lot of work in front of the urban leaders to close the gap and basically lead the cities to such a development, especially that we've mentioned them already. We have so many challenges nowadays, not only the climatic ones, but in terms of like urban sprawl and like how do we energy wise as well. So I think that there is like a huge, huge, huge challenge and task for, for the urban leaders. But I hope that this discussion that we just had, it also contributes to, to the education of the urban leaders and not only. So I just would like to emphasize that I'm very, very thankful for your time, Greg. And thank you for, for sharing all those extremely interesting points on the city's development. I'm really, really pleased that I could learn from you. And I hope that my listeners will be very thankful as well. Thank you for listening to the newest episode with uh, Professor Greg Clark. And I hope that you got also really, really inspired. I'm so happy that thanks to my collaboration with Urban Future Conference, I've been able to talk to Professor Greg and learn from him. So I hope that you found his ideas, his perspective interesting. And regardless if you're an urban designer, architect, a student, or maybe you work within a city context in, in a different way, maybe you are a part of a municipality, city council, or regional council, it doesn't really matter as long as you care for the sustainable development of the cities globally. As Greg said, it is important that we fight for the good urbanization and not the bad urbanization. And he provided a lot of tips for us on how can we achieve that. Thank you very much for listening and talk to you soon.